I decided to use the seven factors of enlightenment for this uh, course. They lend themselves uh, very well to prolonged talks and discussions and we do have many days that we can discuss them. But not only that, by their name you can tell that they are seven things which one has to practice if one wants to go the Buddha's path. Now, the Buddha's path is the path to enlightenment. There is nothing else. Whatever else we do is only a means for that particular end. Um, there was an article in a German newspaper because Buddhism is a, a, a media affair in, in Germany at the moment um, and it was entitled um, Meditating More Beautifully and it was um, a satire quite rightly so and was quite well seen by, by that journalist because that's not what it's all about of course we have to meditate of course we have to be successful at the meditation but they're all means to an end and the only end that the Buddha had in mind was what is called enlightenment nibbana what you can call liberation, freedom um, perfection you can use any word you like it doesn't matter um, this is another thing that is important also that one get, doesn't get hung up on words words are the fingers that are sh pointing to the moon but they're not the moon itself and people make that mistake all the time creation and creator and God and, and uh, an old man and sitting there and, 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 and Nibbana and Nirvana and, and, and soul and paradise and heaven and God knows what else these are all concepts and if you happen to speak English that's the ones you use you speak a different language, you use different concepts because they're not exactly the same always in translation and the thing to do is with words to treat them exactly as I say they are guidelines Buddha used words thousands of them in order to tell what to do but very often they're also misunderstood very often and they're described and explained in a manner, in a way, which is useless. And people who misunderstand them are usually enormously uh, sure that they have understood them and argue no end. But what you need to do with the words is to look at it and see what does it mean for me? How can I deal with that? How do I relate to that? Now here's the word, enlightenment. What, how do I relate to that? Well, the most um, useful answer is probably, I don't relate to it at all, I don't know what it is. That's right. But then maybe the next uh, answer would be, sounds all right, maybe I should try. Mm -hmm. And uh, a third answer might be, well, if that's what the Buddha had in mind, and if I really want to use this pathway, 
Or maybe I should take it for granted that that is the pathway I'm treading. All these are possibilities. The mind can also say, enlightenment, who needs enlightenment? I just want to be a little happier. That's fine too. But what one needs to do is not try to argue or try to make something out of the word, but if it has some meaning, to see what the personal meaning is. What does it mean to me personally? One enlightened person changes the whole world. And one peaceful person changes the whole world. And there's no question about it. One can feel it and see it and be part of it. See, it's very easy also for us to um, become aware of that. Somebody is very angry. We know exactly what they're doing. We've all been there. We've all been angry. So we can tell, oh, person is angry. And if we don't fall into the trap of getting angry too, we might have compassion for that person, that they're so angry. But somebody comes in and is enlightened. How would we know? We've never been enlightened, so what do we know about it? What does it feel like? doesn't wear a halo, hasn't got a badge on, nothing. So we know exactly what we've got inside of us. That's it. That's all we know. And that's why it is so important to enlarge upon that what we have inside of us, so that there's more that we can grasp. We can listen, we can hear, we can read, we can do all sorts of things. And there are innumerable um, seminars and uh, courses and, and uh, people advertising enlightenment. I've seen that advertised too, enlightenment. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Yes, uh, it's a real advertisement, isn't it? I think you might have seen it too, I think. And actually, it's very funny, I must say that um, I get a real kick out of this sort of thing. Um, I was sent a little uh, pamphlet, uh, or more than a pamphlet, was maybe an article by the man who's advertising enlightenment. And um, he didn't send it, somebody else sent it to me. Um, and the way he talks about it and everything, and what to do and how to do it, and claims, quite obviously, that he has thought about all this by himself. Now, what he says in that uh, article is totally correct. It's perfectly all right, and it's exactly according to the Buddha. But he's never heard of the Buddha, apparently, and thinks he's thought it up by himself. So all he needs is a little more time, he's still pretty young, and a uh, little more time to find out that it's all been there, has been here forever. It's not only this one Buddha, this one Buddha that we are referring to, that's two and a half thousand years ago, but in our tradition he was the seventh Buddha, and uh, Buddhas always arise and help mankind in some way. So I found this most interesting that there is a person who has come to all these ideas what to do and how to do it um, and calls it enlightenment um, 
and thinking he's done it all by himself and actually it's in very perfect agreement with what the Buddha teaches but Buddhism of course has no place in his um, explanation so this proves to me that we are all connected and we are connected to universal consciousness as there's no doubt about it and we can get out of universal consciousness like an echo that what we already have in here so if we've got plenty of anger and worry or upset or um, dislike in there well that's what we're going to get out of universal consciousness there's plenty of that in there comes there from all sides but if we have purity and the wish for enlightenment liberation for freedom the understanding of dukkha then some of that what is in universal consciousness will also come to us like an echo and uh, none of us and uh, certainly not somebody who's uh, teaching and the one that I was referring to are separate entities able to think all this up ourselves nobody is it's never happened before and never will the only one that is said to have to think it up by himself is a new Buddha and a new Buddha only arises when Buddhism has died out and then the new Buddha has to think up the whole vulnerable truth and the whole path again by himself because there's no teacher there but other than that there's total connection and this is an important aspect I think that we should never forget that quantum physics tells us that of course we don't pay any attention to that sort of thing who needs quantum physics during the day but it's actually something which is very important there are no observers there are only participants the observer changes the observed so very interesting as I was never interested in that sort of thing I mean physics I didn't even understand the bare minimum in school it just didn't interest me but that is becoming interesting because it's exactly what the Buddha said unity consciousness it, it's always there now remember that too for the purpose of this retreat we're all influencing each other and that what we get out of a um, retreat and what we get out of a teaching is 90% that what resides in the teacher and 10% are the words so never get hung up in the words uh, it's important to ask what does that mean most of the Buddha's discourses are answers to such questions like the one I was mentioning yesterday where I finished the um, book called the Potapada Sutta it's a man called Potapada and he asked question after question and if he hadn't done so we wouldn't have the whole explanation of uh, higher states of consciousness he was totally hung up on higher states of consciousness and absolutely had to know what it meant 
and also wanted to know what's the self and why isn't it and where is it and how is it and the Buddha very patiently answered and answered and answered so it's important to ask but it's um, important to ask and this is also I think a point um, which in every retreat practically everybody does come to to ask so that it's meaningful for myself what's it mean to me maybe it would be a question that somebody else would put in a totally different way that's fine no problem but what does it mean to me and that's an important way to ask questions and uh, if one has taught as long as I have I can tell whether it's meaningful or not just some of the ways it's worded sometimes questions are asked which are the answers are not even meaningful to that person and you know what the Buddha used to do with those questions he either asked a counter question or he kept silent he wouldn't say anything because he could see it wasn't going to be he tells this to Potapada actually this is not conducive to Dhamma this is not conducive to enlightenment and this is what I actually started out with the whole teaching is supposed to be conducive to enlightenment and enlightenment means the end of all dukkha now people have of course misunderstood this to think of it as if it were paradise you know utopia uh, heaven well it can't be heaven anybody who's ever been in a jet plane knows that that's just clouds I mean there's nothing there it's totally uninteresting it's just clouds up there so um, it's not none of those things it's the end of Dukkha because there's nobody there to have Dukkha it's as simple as that the simplicity of that does not denote that it's simple to do it's the most difficult thing that we can do in this lifetime but it's also the most rewarding there's nothing that compares with the reward of not being there imagine well can you? one should actually one should be able to imagine it I compare that to an architect who has an idea how to build a house so what does he do? he imagines this house and puts it on a piece of paper and then he can give it to some builder to say well look this is the way I want it now you do it well this imagination of making a blueprint is very important also in the Dhamma we shouldn't just say ah yes Nibbana well somewhere where I don't know or not understood or which is true but we should actually use our mind with as much fertility as it may have to imagine what it could be like to be without that feeling of there's me if we have been able to do the higher jhanas uh, actually starting from the fourth particularly in the fifth and sixth and seventh we get an inkling of it now these jhanas are also part of the factors of enlightenment and we'll talk about them 
But if you get an inkling of it, it's much easier to imagine, of course. But if you don't have an inkling of it, there are some very um, worldly and mundane situations which also point in that direction what it's like to be without this me, even though it is very short-lived and very momentary. It doesn't matter, even in one moment. Let's say that we have been watching a sunset or we've been at the ocean becoming really um, imbued and interested and concentrated on the wave movement or we've been watching a small child which is very cute and uh, delightful and we have felt a great sense of happiness in that situation well, let's take a sunset which is totally neutral and impersonal now obviously the result of our thinking then is it's due to the sunset and we must go and watch more sunsets and so we do and the next sunset isn't quite as good and maybe it's even just as beautiful but we don't feel this great sense of happiness so we decide, well, maybe it's not the sunset, maybe it's the ocean, so we'll try that. And the same thing happens over and over again. But what actually is happening there, it's got nothing to do with the sunset, it's got nothing to do with the ocean, and absolutely nothing to do with the small child. These are triggers, triggers that trigger us into a moment of self-forgetfulness. And when we are triggered into a moment of self-forgetfulness, we can totally give ourselves to the experience. And as we give ourselves totally, even very, very momentary, totally give ourselves to that experience, we have a great sense of delight. And that delight lives within us. It's not there because of the sunset. Because we have seen how many sunsets? Hundreds. Hundreds of sunsets. And if we were, for instance, engaged in driving a car while the sunset was there, we weren't delighted. We said, oh, isn't that pretty? Look over there. And that's it, finished. But that inner complete feeling of actually there's nothing but sunset. There's nothing but beauty at that time. That is only brought about by that self-forgetfulness. So that, even without being able to do any of the higher jhanas, may give an inkling what it can be like when self is no longer the motivating factor. Now, in the world, in humanity, but also in animals, in fact, in all manifestation which is not enlightened, which are many different manifestations, Self is the motivating factor. Um, the stronger the self, the more it motivates us and the more problems we have. If we have few problems, then the self isn't very, um, not very enlarged. If we have a lot of problems with our surroundings, with the people that we deal with, 
if we'd rather not deal with them but like to sort of um, remove ourselves from them the self is having a lot of problems it's I like to compare that with a very fat person trying to go through a narrow door if that very fat person goes through the fairly narrow door they um, bump the body at each side of the door frame and it hurts but if a slim person goes through there they don't feel a thing so if the ego is very fat it gets bruised all the time constant problem and it doesn't need any other person to create the problem the ego creates its own problem but if the ego has already slimmed down then it can easily sort of move in and out of all our confrontations but being able to imagine what it's like to be without it is a help the same as it is a help to be able to imagine what it would be like to be concentrated what the mind conjures up it can eventually do we don't have to sit here and wait for the luck or the chance luck of the draw or the chances that we get we can make them happen and this is what the Buddha said make it happen know what is important and make it happen and obviously we all have a good enough karma to make it happen otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here people who have very bad karma they don't come to meditation courses and if they too do come which is um, rare they usually uh, run away after a short time because their whole being is not um, geared towards this sort of thing so we have been good enough karma and trying to conjure up what I really want to do doesn't mean that I'm now imagining I'm doing it remember the simile of an architect with a blueprint he's made the blueprint he doesn't imagine he's already built the house I mean the house is nowhere to be seen but he knows exactly the way it should look and also he can explain how it should look so it's a big difference between the blueprint and the actual house but it's very difficult to build a house without a blueprint it's sort of potluck and it can very easily happen that things go haywire when you do you have to be very careful you have to really know how you want to do it so same goes here the uh, there are 37 factors of enlightenment and within those 37 factors the seven are again one of them but the seven factors of enlightenment are more often enumerated by the Buddha than the 37 factors the seven factors of enlightenment are mentioned quite a number of times not necessarily with that name he mentions them over and over again as steps to practice and as usual and practically always it starts out with mindfulness 
There's no way we can do anything if we aren't mindful. Now the word mindfulness is also constantly misunderstood and we are misled by its uh, simple uh, way of sounding. I mean, what could be difficult about being mindful? Well, actually, it's not easy at all. And mindfulness starts always with mindfulness of the body. That's how it always starts. And in the meditation, we use the breath as mindfulness of the body, and the walking meditation as mindfulness of the body. These are two of the most um, traditional ways of using mindfulness in meditation. The uh, attention to the breath in Pali is anapanasati. Sati is mindfulness, S-A-T-I. And anapana is in breath out breath. So what we're actually practicing when we're watching the breath is we're practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, which is the first foundation of mindfulness. And we could enlarge that mindfulness of the body by thinking of being mindful of materiality, of material things which surround us. But being mindful means to be aware and awake and being very keen observer. And a keen observer eventually gets a different view of what he or she observes. Having really observed, we see it differently. Now, when we observe our breath, and we know we can't live without it, we never think of that, of course. We just say, oh yes, it's a meditation subject, okay. And or if we get uh, asthma, it's uh, something which is very unpleasant because we can't breathe properly or if we should um, be drowning also very unpleasant because we don't get any breath but other than that we never think of the breath so now we've got it as a meditation subject but what do we think about it maybe we think I can't concentrate oh, now I concentrated oh my breath is going too fast I should slow it down or it's too hot to meditate, or any number of things. But none of them are on the way to liberation. None of these thoughts, whether we can concentrate or not, or whether it's hot or not, it's got nothing to do with the pathway that the Buddha taught. When we actually watch the breath, the first thing that should come to mind is if the mind doesn't immediately become calm is that our life depends on it second thing is it depends on a completely impermanent intake and outgo of a little bit of air and if that air should not be pure enough to live in we die which has happened when atomic um, um, installations blow up and things like that and people all over the place die or bombs go off so we are dependent upon a little bit of air going in and out now immediately 
it's apparent that everybody else is too. There's no difference. They want the same air. And they want equally as much of it as we do. And they should be given equally as much. Otherwise they can't continue to live. So where's the difference? Then, when we see this impermanent bit of air going in and out, we can very often relate to the rest of the body as also not being as solid as we thought it was. It's also moving all the time. Maybe we can feel our heart beating. Maybe we can feel our blood pulsing. Maybe we can actually even feel the tiny movements that are ourselves, but they wouldn't say, I am a cell. It would just be a tiny movement which happens, and we could feel that. And as we feel all that, we lose some of that solidity feeling. Now, mindfulness of the body is the first foundation of mindfulness, and because the Buddha thought and said it was so important, he urges us to always return to it, not only in the meditation, but outside of the meditation. And this is also the reason why I'm using it as a very first item, (coughs) so that outside of your meditation, when you, for instance, come from your room to the meditation hall, or from the meditation hall you go to the dining room, or you put on your shoes or you take off your shoes, or you get dressed or you get undressed, or you take a shower, whatever whatever it is you're doing, you have keen observation of every movement. Now what does that do? It does many things. The first thing it does, it purifies. The one way for the purification of beings is the first uh, line of the uh, mindfulness explanation of the Buddha. The one way for the purification of beings. Why does it purify? Because if one is a keen observer of every movement one makes, one could not possibly have any hate or greed in the mind can't do two things in the mind at once, which is a great boon to us, although the mind is so fast that we can, of course, change all the time. But if we, through the meditative practice, have had some concentration ability, we can stay on the movement and we can actually recognize the intention behind it. I'm now going to put my shoes on and then the actual putting on of the shoe and as we do that the mind is clear and translucent and pure it has nothing that it can be worried about there's nothing to worry about about putting on some shoes nothing at all neither is there anything to worry about when you take a shower or when you get dressed or undressed But what we do instead, instead of being a keen observer of what we're doing, we are maybe putting on our shoes 
and debating in the mind whether the meditation we've just had was good or bad or whether we should actually do it this way or that way and how we could make it, maybe make it better or how we could um, remove ourselves from the heat or how we could uh, solve some personal problem instead of putting on shoes. Naturally, there's no purification and there's no mindfulness. Everybody does it. The thing to do is to become aware of it. It's really fascinating. We call the mind a magician. It pulls magic, everything, even out of putting on shoes. It's somewhere entirely different. It doesn't have any connection to putting on shoes. It's too easy to put on shoes. And then we walk. We walk, we put on our shoes, we walk to the dining room. Well, since we learned walking when we were less than two years old, of course, we are very uh, adept at it. So, who pays attention to walking? The mind might be saying, I wonder what they're having for lunch. They're not used to vegetarian dishes. I wonder how they made out. I hope it tastes like something. <laughs> or whatever. But who thinks of walking? So when, the, when we're hoping it's going to taste like something or what they're going to do with the vegetarian meals and all that, there is unrest inside. It's not a big deal, it's not a tragedy or anything like that, but it's not peaceful. But if we watch every step getting to the dining room, it's very peaceful. There's nothing to disturb us. What is there to disturb a step? So we make step, 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 and the mind and the body stay in the same place. There is this uh, New Age um, um, mistaken view that mind and body are one. They're not, of course. The mind is the one that has the intention and the body is the one that's trying to follow it. But they're dependent upon each other, which is a totally different matter from being one. They're two, but they're dependent on each other. And people have... uh, made up some sort of fantasy that they've got to be one. Yes, they should be in the same place at the same time. If we step, make a step, well, take a step, we should be there with the mind too, taking the step. So this mindfulness of the body outside of meditation is just as important as the mindfulness in the meditation because if we allow the mind to roam wherever it likes, it's very difficult to become concentrated. But if we keep it in check and keep it where we should keep it, it's much easier to sit down and meditate. But not only that, it's a matter of purification and it's learning to be in the here and now. And most people, if not everybody, lives in the past and the future. And living in the past or living in the future is not really being alive. It's memory and it's projection. So if we have a fairly good memory, we bring up things from the past. And I know numbers of people who bring up unpleasant memories constantly. And then they need a therapist to tell it to. And that the therapist doesn't take their memory away either. He just listens to what they're remembering. 
And the going uh, idea about that is very interesting, actually. The going idea about that whole thing is that you've got to have it clear, all these unfortunate, unpleasant memories, we have to have them all brought up to the present and work them out so that then you can get rid of them. Um, the Buddha would have um, been quite um, amazed at such a statement. You get rid of them if you drop them. That's the only way you get rid of them. And the reason why people keep bringing up these unpleasant memories, and there are a lot of dukkha for people, is because they have an ego support system in them. Look at me how I have suffered. And it hasn't even been my fault. It's always somebody else's fault, naturally. It's nobody's fault, but uh, this look at me how I have suffered, and it's not even my fault, is a very strong ego support system. It is actually very often stronger than, look what a nice life I've had. People don't usually do that at all. They're very capable of bringing up these unpleasant memories and blaming somebody for them, um, or for the deed that uh, created the unpleasantness, and don't actually bring up all the nice things that happened to them. So if we must live in the past, why don't we bring up the things which are conducive to joy? It seems that most people find that very difficult. It's interesting, isn't it? And um, it's no use living in the past anyway. There is one thing to be said about memory, and I mentioned that last night, and I'll repeat it now. We can take a good look at what we are doing each day and then if there's anything that we find that is better left undone well, not to do it again and there we're learning from the past but to learn from a past which is 10, 20 years back which people do try um, to bring up or 5 years back or 2 years back or whatever is futile and the person who lived through that experience is no longer alive. We are totally different. So if we use this just the day that just happened, we have a chance. It's useful. Useful to see, yep, there's something there that I don't really want to do again. It takes a great deal of um, self-understanding and self-inquiry to see that the unpleasantness which happens to us is strictly due to the unpleasantness which we ourselves emanate. Not easy. We always like to find somebody who's done it to us. But it's useless. Totally useless. Do we have any jurisdiction over somebody else? How they feel, how they see us, how they react to us, how they speak. Do we have any jurisdiction over that? Can we hit them over the head and say, I don't like this, do it differently? It's useless, isn't it? And yet in our minds we do it all the time. There's always somebody who's doing something to us. It's, we call it the victim mentality. We are nobody's victim. 
We are our own victim. We are the victim of our greed, hate and delusion. And we don't have to be. This victim mentality is uh, very um, demoralizing, extremely demoralizing, because you're looking to the outside world for some relief, looking to the uh, people outside for relief. Well, who's interested in giving relief? Everybody needs it themselves. Everybody wants it for their own. Nobody's interested in giving anybody else relief. Polite, uh, friendly, uh, don't get uh, irked about anything. But relief is only inside of us. So we can, actually, what we do with mindfulness. We have the path of purification there, because when we watch what the body is doing, we don't get hung up on the past and the future. And if we don't get hung up on the past or the future, we learn to live in the now. And when we learn to live in the now, we've taken an enormous step the only time we can live now I said yesterday get one of those digital clocks or watch one of those digital clocks it's amazing how fast every moment disappears I don't have a digital clock but my son has one so I've been watching it and they just disappear every moment goes and as every moment goes if we have thought of the next one or the one before that, we haven't lived that moment. It's lost. Most people lose most of their lives that way, in the past and in the future. In the future of what they want to become, and in the past, what they would have liked to have had and didn't have. This is the most common. What they would have liked to have had and didn't have, like their mother wasn't loving enough or something like that. And in the future, they're going to be um, somebody, somebody important. They're going to have more knowledge. They're going to be an excellent meditator, whatever it is that they're thinking about in the future. But they lose, the people who do that constantly, lose their life doing that because the life is happening now. And all they're doing is remembering and projecting, hoping and being disappointed. Disappointed about the past, hoping for a better future. So if we learn through mindfulness, and mindfulness can only happen now. We can't have mindfulness in the past. The breath which is gone is gone. We can't watch it. The step that is we've done is done. We can't watch it anymore. And we can't have mindfulness in the future because the breath that is yet to come hasn't come and the step that is yet to come hasn't come. So we've got to be on it now. So if we learn to be in the here and now, we're learning a most important thing. And if we do it consecutively for several moments, it doesn't have to be a long time, just for several moments, we should be able to notice the relief and release that it provides. It's like losing a burden. There's nothing in the whole world that can actually have any connection to unpleasantness within us, to reaction within us, to wanting something. We're just there. We are being instead of hoping to be or having been 
we are makes all the difference in the world that's why mindfulness always takes pride of place so to be in the here and now now with the body we have two things that happen they are actually the one and the same but we can divide it into two makes it a little easier one is the the voluntary action like I'm now going to put my shoes on or I'm going to dinner <laughs> so we have the voluntary the intentional I would say it's better than voluntary the intentional action we have made up our mind to do something and we're doing it but then we also have movements which are involuntary we don't notice them we move our hands we move our heads we move our the body language that too, too are mindfulness objects those movements and when we do watch them and become a keen observer our movements become more exact and we don't make so many unnecessary ones which is also a, um, a way of um, conserving energy physical energy even though we think we might have lots of it everybody does have a limited amount of energy so we do make a lot of movements which are not productive so we can learn to watch those that doesn't mean that we become stiff as a board or anything like that it just means that we try to use our body in the best possible way and when we are mindful of the body and watch the intentions watch also the involuntary movements it follows automatically that we don't forget that we know what we're doing and that we are really concentrated even on the smallest details and this is an interesting aspect of mindfulness and of spiritual mindfulness attention to small detail if we don't attend to the small details within us the big ones won't follow we have to find even the small and tiny bits of hate and greed and when we do it's a relief see one of the things also that people do wrong is that they see in themselves all of a sudden some unpleasant uh, characteristics and they get very unhappy about that that oh I didn't know I had so much hate I didn't know I had so much greed I didn't know I, I wasn't mindful enough or whatever and they get very unhappy about it and they think of themselves in a negative way but that's totally wrong they should be very happy about it that they found it because they've got it so and they've had it all the time but now having found it is a cause for great happiness because we can only change what we are aware of 
So if we actually find something that needs change, it's a cause for joy. And uh, if somebody else has been the trigger for that, we very often get angry at that person because they made us aware of uh, our own unfortunate reaction. We should be immensely grateful to that person. What a wonderful person. I finally found out how I'm reacting. I mean, the person was probably very unpleasant. And uh, so our immediate reaction is, I don't like that person at all, terrible person. But we should be grateful. We should uh, bend our knees in gratitude. Say, that's marvelous. He was so unpleasant. Now I know all about my reactions. (laughs) And then, only then, we can change. So the mindfulness of the body, which takes pride of place, and should always be um, come back to outside of meditation, of course, um, we let go of it when some strong thought or emotion is within us. And we'll talk about those factors of um, those foundations of mindfulness tomorrow, because we have four, four foundations of mindfulness. But also, as we become more and more aware of the body, we see it in a different way. Now, we watch how the mind has said, put on your shoes. And we don't take it for granted that the body is putting on shoes. We know that the mind has said, put on shoes. Well, the mind has said, come to this meditation retreat. And so the body sits here. If the mind hadn't said, come here, the body couldn't make it. Impossible. So we watch that and we see, ah, yeah, that's interesting. Mind gives the orders, body follows. The first step of insight. Without it, we'll never keep our meditation going. Because we're too body-orientated. Practically everybody is quite body-orientated. And... uh, the mind is taken for granted but actually it's um, quite a wrong way of looking at it the mind does all the ordering about and the body tries to follow now if the body is healthy and young it can usually follow the orders if it isn't uh, healthy or is old it can't follow all the orders but um, it's the mind that sets the pace So that's another very important thing that we learn with the mindfulness of the body. But then, having seen that, there comes also a new way of seeing the body. Namely, so far, up to then, most people would have considered the body is me. And we don't find it so terribly difficult to let go of that. If we can watch the impermanent nature of everything that is part of the body. Now the breath, each movement. If, for instance, we were having movements that are not impermanent, what would happen? We'd... uh, turn into a stone, wouldn't we? And we couldn't possibly continue living. All our movements have to be impermanent. 
a breath, obviously, and they'd be dead if we didn't have an impermanent breath. Heartbeat, blood circulation, everything has to be impermanent. And yet, we look at it in a different way. I like to compare that to a meandering brook. Now, you see the brook is um, moving along, and it's quite pretty. And then you want to get a hold of it. So you put your hand in it and try to grab it. And what do you get? Nothing but a wet hand. You can't possibly grab any of it. It just keeps moving along. Now, if you were absolutely determined to make it stop, you don't want it to move along anymore, the brook. Make it stop. So what do you get? A stagnant pool. You don't have a brook anymore. It's the same with a human being. If you stop it from moving, what do you have? A corpse. That's all you get. And yet, people live constantly as if everything were solid. Everything were the way it is now. And yet it's constantly moving. Constantly changing. So if you see that change in your movement, that change in your breath, if you watch that and remember maybe the simile of the meandering brook, you will see the body correctly. Now if you see that, you might also forget about or let go of rather the idea this is me and get more the idea oh the mind must be me or if you've gone through that one then you're stuck with the observer is me well but what does that do about the body for you with the body it usually makes people think okay I'm not the body but I certainly own this thing now there you can also investigate if you really own this body why does it so often do things that you'd rather have it not do if you were a true owner why don't you have any real jurisdiction over it it gets older and uglier it gets sick when you want it to be well it's tired when you want to be awake it's hungry when when you have no time to eat it gets exhausted and you really don't want to be exhausted you get a cold and you're sniffling or you've got a backache or you've got knee aches or why is it do all these things? Well, you don't want it to do that. So if you really owned it, why haven't you got any jurisdiction over the thing? Who's, where's the owner? So this is another way of having a look at our mistaken view of the body. Having another look at the idea we have. Who says, where is it being said that there's an owner sitting inside? How did we get that idea? And maybe we can come up with the um, reply. It's just an idea. But mostly people come up with, well, it's got to be mine because nobody else is going to claim it so it's got to be mine but again 
Why? Where who says that, that it can't actually belong to anybody? Can't we just see it as a body? A body consisting of many bits and pieces, consisting of the primary four elements, or the four great elements, which all materiality consists of. And if we try to do that, and we'll try to do that in a contemplation just now, we get a far more objective view of this body. And as we get a more objective view of it, it's not so much me, it's a, it's a body. A lot of our concern about its size and shape and beauty or non-beauty and its uh, age and its looks and its uh, health disappear. It's just the body. That doesn't mean that we don't look after it. It's the house we live in. We look after the houses we live in. But we don't think that all the things that are in that house are necessarily us. I mean, we don't think that we are the refrigerator, do we? And yet the refrigerator is inside my house. And I try to keep it clean, don't I? And, and uh, defrost it when necessary. But it's just a refrigerator. Well, it's the same as this body. A refrigerator consists of many different parts and is very useful, especially in this climate. You've got to have it. Well, so is this body, consisting of many different parts, very useful, carries the mind around. But it has all its malfunctions and its functions, just like any refrigerator has. And since we never think I am a refrigerator, because of course a refrigerator hasn't got a mind, by the same token, why do we think that this could possibly be me, or even mine? Now with a refrigerator, we think it's mine because we've paid for it. But basically, even if we live in a place where the um, furniture is um, provided, we think it's mine because we use it. That's the same as the body. We think it's mine because we use it. But these are all ideas. They have no real basis in fact. And this is something which is necessary where we need the words to be used in a way which is different from what we usually denote. Look at the words and see what do they mean? Could it be possible that this is just something I'm using, this body? Now, you know that we speak about the rebirth, and obviously a totally different body is reborn. So there we've got a totally different refrigerator, because the old one wore out. You know, we had to get a new one. The old one just had to be junked. That's the same with the body. The old one had to be junked, was no longer functional, so there's a new one. And again we think, ah, oh, it's me. And we go through the whole misery again and again. 
and worry about it, are concerned with it, and want it to function perfectly. Nobody's ever had, by the way, a perfectly functioning body, although some people claim that they've heard of it. There's no such thing. Perfection can only be in the mind, and that's only for an arahant, an enlightened one. Perfect perfection in the body is an impossibility. Simply also because of the fact that it needs constant refurbishing. It needs food and it needs drink and it has to digest and excrete. So it has to go in and out. So look at that too. That's part of body mindfulness. It doesn't mean that we don't look after the body. It doesn't mean that we are disgusted with it, nothing of the sort. It means that we have a more neutral stand towards it and aren't so adamant about our ownership of it, but recognize the fact that we use it, but not own it. When we think we own it, we are, of course, immensely concerned with it. I mean, like, you know, wanting it beautiful and perfect. But if we think we're using it, we can be a little more relaxed about it. And if we realize that it has nothing to do with me, but that it's just the body, we also don't have to be so afraid of its um, sickness and disease and old age. But just the way every functioning manifestation goes, whether it's a car or a refrigerator or a body. So mindfulness can extend to other materiality, like, for instance, trees and bushes, even cars and houses. If you look at a house carefully as a keen observer, you will see that here and there it needs paint, here and there it's got cracks, here and there it's got, uh, has been banged, uh, trees in the same way. And eventually, if nobody repairs the things, and trees have to repair themselves, mostly, their function stops, and they have to go to the compost heap if they are natural items or they have to go to the junk heap and it's exactly the same with us no difference and yet we think this is me and this is mine and we're so concerned with it and that concern translates into greed and hate wanting to have and also wanting to get rid of the less we can be concerned with that, the more we can let go of wanting and not wanting. One of the things which can help us in that respect, and all of that belongs to the mindfulness of the body, and you can practice any of them, all of them, one of them, whatever you like. These are all suggestions. They uh, are not hard and fast rules. The Buddha never made hard and fast rules. He always said, well, this is the way it would be useful to do it. And you can try. Uh, one of the things which is very helpful in order to uh, get a different slant on this body 
is the meditation on the four great elements or the, rather the contemplation on it now when we speak about contemplation we are actually speaking about an, a way into insight contemplation is geared towards insight now the word itself is being used in different ways in different traditions but in this um, in the Buddhist tradition or specifically in this one contemplation means an observation of universal laws as they apply to myself in other words taking the universe into myself making the macrocosm work for the microcosm seeing what is true everywhere and seeing how I personally also have that truth within me now that's a contemplation a contemplation is not personal problem solving people love to do that in contemplation they've just had their lover depart and they're going to solve that in contemplation it doesn't work because what is the lover departing nothing but impermanence so if they were to contemplate impermanence it might work but it certainly doesn't work for you to contemplate your lover departing so which happens all the time the uh, or they've had some doctor told them that they have some sickness and now they are contemplating how they're going to get out of it uh, that doesn't work either what works is when you contemplate that all manifestations all existence is dukkha that works and then see the dukkha in oneself so contemplation is the universal situation translated into the personal how does it affect me what does it mean to me now obviously in contemplation we have the same problem that we have in meditation we need to remain concentrated on the one subject and if the mind wanders off we have to gently and lovingly bring it back we should never scold it that it does such things because everybody's mind does things like that but we should um, be determined about it we could treat it as we would and educate it like we would educate a small child that's intelligent enough to understand what we're saying saying look this doesn't work do it differently but if we scold the child we don't have much chance of making a big impression so it's much better to do it lovingly again and again and again patience and uh, perseverance these two P's are most important in meditation patience and perseverance without them nothing happens and patience and perseverance are sort of like in spite of setbacks and in spite of uh, uh, possible uh, confrontations with that what one doesn't like one just keeps on with it and eventually it all falls into place it all works out in a way where there's peace so we can do a contemplation right now on the elements but I suggest that before we do that you might like to stand up and stretch your legs
In order to start, we'll put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. And I'd like you to feel in your body all those parts that are solid and that you can easily recognize. And the solidity you can feel sitting, touching the pillow, touching the uh, floor, the hands on the body, any hardness that you can feel, you can feel skin, hair, anything at all, you can go through the body and feel all those points where you can feel solidity and hardness, compactness. You can feel the compactness of the body. You might feel the compactness altogether or in different spots. All that is the earth element. Earth element has as its characteristic solidity and compactness and as its function it has foundation Now as you feel the solidity and compactness of this body, you can also feel the solidity and compactness of the cushion you're sitting on. Now let the feeling of the body flow into that cushion so that the two compactnesses, the two earth elements merge. And then let it flow into the legs from the legs into the floor so that all this compactness merges that there's only one earth element not separated from another and as you feel this merging move your mind to the side of the house, touch the wall of the house and let the earth element of the house merge into the earth element of the hand. Both have solidity and compactness, hardness. And now we'll go outside and the feet touch 
the earth and our feeling of earth element within us flows into the earth element that we stand on we're not separate from it we can see and feel quite clearly that it's the same solidity that we feel within and then we walk on it and put our hand on a tree and again we can feel the compactness and solidity the earth element of the tree flowing together into the earth element that we have in our hand and from there merges with our whole body so we have it merging from the feet and the ground on up all the way through the body to the hand to the tree earth element of tree earth element of earth and we continue the same go and walk on the grass and feel our feet and the grass merging together and the same with the bushes flowers small plants and large plants wherever we go whatever we touch we feel the earth element within us and the earth element in nature around us we look up at the sky and as we see the clouds we can tell that the clouds also contain earth elements because they are visible and manifested and so we allow the earth element within us to merge with the earth element in the clouds gently move back with our feet through the grass and the undergrowth 
back to the side of the house wherever we touch touch the door or the handle on the door we can feel the solid compactness of the earth element merging into our own we walk along the floor feel it in our feet sit down on the pillow and feel it the earth element of the pillow and our feet and feel the earth element all through the body the solid compact aspect of the body take a look at the fire element within us the temperature that we feel in our body the fire element is the temperature as characteristic and destroyer as function but also rejuvenator without the fire element we wouldn't be able to digest without the fire element we wouldn't age it destroys but also rejuvenates as we know from the forest so we feel the temperature within us from head to toe And then we feel the temperature of what we're sitting on and let one flow into the other, not being separate. And as we walk outside, we let the temperature of the floor flow into the soles of our feet. and the temperature of the door of the handle flow into our hands and emerge and then as we come outside we can feel the temperature of the earth itself and we can connect that the temperature on our feet and as we stand in the sun we can feel the temperature within us rising and we can also through touch feel the temperature of the ground around us rising
we go to the tree and as we touch it we can feel its temperature maybe cool or warm but the temperature of the tree merges into the temperature of our hand and the temperature of the ground merges into the temperature of our feet and we are no longer separated single entity but connected as we walk over the grass we can feel a different temperature and that different temperature is also then in the soles of our feet and it may be also the body and we merge with that and then we go into the shade and can notice that the temperature of our body and the temperature of the ground around us diminishes get less and again we can feel the togetherness to a little stream and dip our hands in and feel the temperature of the stream affecting the temperature of our hands and then affecting the temperature of the whole body now we think of ourselves as going into the ocean and we can feel how the temperature of the water in the ocean affects the temperature in our whole body and we allow the temperature of ourselves and the temperature of the water to merge gently walk back to our sitting pillow 
becoming aware of the different temperatures in sun and shade as they affect the ground and ourselves as we can merge into them do not have to be an outside observer but have the feeling of unity and as we sit back on our pillow to feel the temperature within us from head to toe joined to the temperature on the pillow and we become aware of the water element now the water element within us is all that's liquid its characteristic is liquidity its function is adherence which means that if you put water into flour it sticks together and makes dough so we have adherence because we consist of almost 80% water which gives us the optical illusion of separate entity we feel the saliva perspiration the eyes if we can become aware of the blood pulsating and we certainly can become aware of adherence all our parts being together this togetherness is also apparent in the pillow we sit on and we let ourselves merge into that it's apparent in all physical manifestations such as the floor the wall the door the door handle and as we go outside we can feel the water element in the grass the juice or the dew and let it merge into the soles of our feet and as we put our hands on the tree we can feel the sap and the sap merges into our hands and through our body to the feet on the grass we dip our hands into that the water element of the stream is obvious and it actually adheres to our hands and arms we're covered with it it influences us makes us cooler 
and thirdly wet. And we try to merge our own water element with the water element of the stream. As we come out, we stand in the rain and we merge with that water element. And as we look up into the sky, we can see that the clouds are filled with that water element. So we connect our own water element, 80% of us, the water element in the clouds. No separation, no separate entities. Unity of manifestation. And we go to the ocean and dive under a big wave. And we can feel the merging of this body with the water in the ocean. We lose the separation. 